Thank you for joining us for another Carlton Fields podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the CMS final rule on emergency preparedness requirements for Medicare and Medicaid participating providers and suppliers. The deadline for implementing the regulations outlined in the final rule is November 16, 2017, which is quickly approaching. Joining us today to discuss the CMS final rule are healthcare attorneys Rada Bogman and Beth Scarola. Rada is a board-certified health law attorney. She represents a wide array of healthcare entities. In addition to counseling clients on systems operations, joint venture and transaction structuring, physician employment and contracting, HIPAA, licensing matters, and tax-exempt issues, she helps clients with compliance issues. Beth Scarola brings an insider's perspective to her healthcare practice, having worked for a large, statewide, clinically integrated network of hospitals and providers. She has a deep understanding of health policy, the Affordable Care Act, HIPAA, privacy issues, risk management, peer review, and licensing matters. She counsels health administrators and providers and helps them navigate the complexity of healthcare regulation and policy. Rada and Beth, welcome. Hello, my name is Rada Bachman. I am a shareholder in the healthcare practice group of Carleton Fields in Tampa, Florida. Joining me today is my colleague, Beth Scarola. Hurricane Irma recently wreaked havoc on the Caribbean and much of the state of Florida. In the storm's aftermath, 10 residents of a South Florida nursing facility died because the facility lost power and did not have access to a backup generator to keep the residents cool. On September 8, 2016, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, published the final rule enumerating the emergency preparedness requirements for Medicare and Medicaid participating providers and suppliers. A link to the rule is available on carltonfields.com. While emergency preparedness rules existed previously, CMS did not believe they went far enough in ensuring that providers were adequately prepared to protect beneficiaries in the case of a disaster. Specifically, CMS referenced several natural and man-made disasters, including the September 11th terrorist attacks, anthrax attacks, the H1N1 influenza epidemic, Hurricane Sandy, and Hurricane Katrina. We all can appreciate that there was much to be learned in terms of emergency preparedness from each of these events. CMS agreed and what resulted was the final rule. It should be noted that these requirements are either a condition of participation or a condition for coverage for Medicare providers. Providers have had a year since publication of the rule to take steps towards compliance. The regulations under the final rule must be implemented by November 16, 2017 less than 60 days from today. There are 17 provider types which are affected by the final rule. CMS meant to address three key essentials necessary for maintaining access to healthcare services during an emergency. First, safeguarding human resources. Next, maintaining business continuity. And finally, protecting physical resources. In light of recent natural events in Florida and Texas, and the looming deadline for compliance, we have asked James Randolph of the Tampa-based Pathfinder Group to be, with her, to be here with us to provide some helpful tips for providers with respect to the CMS emergency preparedness requirements. Mr. Randolph has 30 years of experience in developing and implementing enterprise risk management initiatives. He focuses on implementing cost-effective business solutions for his clients. Mr. Randolph educates organizations on the importance of risk and compliance and strives to increase his clients' profitability by reducing their risk exposure and outage times. 
Mr. Randolph is co-chair of the Office of National Coordinators Rural Health Community Practice Group and reg regularly conducts CMS final rule readiness assessments for his clients. Welcome, Mr. Randolph. Thank you for being here with us today. So the deaths at the South Florida nursing home that Rada mentioned in the introduction have been all over the news, and all of us wish that the deaths had been avoided. Although ultimately it is up to each healthcare facility to assess whether patients are in danger and ensure that they're safe, I'm happy to know that CMS is requiring participating providers to plan for emergencies. James, can you outline the action items that participating providers should make in order to comply with CMS requirements? Beth and Ryder, appreciate you inviting me to today's podcast. And yes, Beth, I can highlight those items. First of all, each organization, healthcare provider, should conduct a risk assessment, develop an emergency plan, implement policies and procedures to execute their emergency plans, communicate the plan within the facility and across healthcare providers, develop training and testing of the programs, and update the plan annually. In updating the plan annually, they, can have, they must do one full plan execution throughout, and they can do the second plan, could be a tabletop. So those are the highlights of what is contained within the emergency preparedness documentation. It sounds like there are a lot of steps there. Rada, who would typically be the right individual within an organization to manage preparation of the plan? That's a great question. And as you know, with respect to many of our clients, it's the chief risk officer or risk management director that's tasked with spearheading the process necessary to comply with the rule. Performance of the risk assessment requires the involvement of lots of other key personnel, including an administrator, chief medical officer, director of nursing, pharmacy folks, and sometimes even the food services director and others. Remember that, if, that most, if not all, Joint Commission accredited organizations do have some type of emergency preparedness plan in place. However, the rule has much more robust requirements in it, and so the organizations will need to review the current plan, compare it to their performed risk assessment, and revise, update, and in many cases develop new sections for their emergency plans in order to be compliant. So even if they have a plan, they're going to have to do some revisiting. Oftentimes, CMS waits until the week before the deadline, and then they extend the deadline by another year or so so that participating providers have plenty of time to comply with requirements. If you had to guess, James, do you believe that the deadline will be extended in this case? Beth, in this case, taking into consideration several natural and natural disasters, such as the hurricanes Matthew, Harvey, and Irma, Midwest tornadoes and floods, the Oroville Dam that almost spilled over, just to name a few, which the nation has experienced since the announcement again, which was November 16, 2016, it is unlikely that the deadline will be extended. To date, the healthcare providers have had 10 months to meet the requirements. This date didn't creep up on providers. <laughs> Yikes, so now they better be ready. Which providers and suppliers are required to comply with the new rule, and are the rules the same for each provider type? As mentioned earlier, there are 17 types of healthcare providers and suppliers. It's very important that the suppliers be included in our conversation, included in the final rule, which again will be provided a link on your Carlton Fields website. To name a few provider types, there are hospitals, critical access hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, hospices, and psych hospitals. In order to determine which healthcare facility is on the list, please refer to the final rule. 
James, do you have any tips for our listeners regarding conducting the hazards risk assessment? Beth, I do. An excellent final rule emergency preparedness resource is ASPR Tracy, and I will spell this. ASPR in all capital letters is A-S-P-R. Tracy in all capital letters is T-R-A-C-I-E. The website will be available on Carlton Fields website. Several other templates are available to develop health care systems and hospital health vulnerability assessments, better known as HVAs. The primary input for all emergency preparedness plans. Also, smaller identified health care providers, such as your federally qualified health care centers or your community health centers. Your rural health centers or RHCs have vulnerabilities assessments which are also available and can be found on the internet. Keys for all risk assessments is an all-hazards approach consideration. So when you say all hazards, what do you mean? Besides hurricanes, what other hazards should facilities prepare for? Well, in the past 10 months, America has experienced tornadoes, floods, fires, cybersecurity attacks, power outages, medical surges, infectious disease outbreaks, active shooters, earthquakes, and civil unrest. All of these could be considered in your all-hazards approach when you're developing your plan. So how robust does the plan have to be to be considered in compliance? The emergency preparedness plan has to be robust enough to address the requirements found in all four components. Those components are your emergency risk assessment and backup, communications, policies and procedures, and testing your plan. If a member of a healthcare system or provider type has multiple locations in different cities or states, your final rule plan must include the integration and collaboration with your local healthcare provider community. If you are an FQHC or federally qualified healthcare center and you have a relationship or don't have a relationship with a near hospital, you need to share the information on what you would need with them and they need to share that with you. That comes back to the community aspects of what the emergency preparedness plan is laid out to do. Increase the communications between all healthcare providers in a certain area. So if I have one healthcare facility and typically I compete with you another healthcare facility, in this situation you're saying that we should work together in order to make sure that we have plans. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. So if we've conducted a risk assessment and developed an emergency plan, the next step would be to implement policies and procedures to execute the plan. Do you suggest a certain format for the required policies and procedures? Beth, there is not a specific format required for the manner in which the facility must have their emergency plans documented. Upon survey, a facility must be able to provide documentation of the policies and procedures and show surveyors where the policies and procedures are located. As indicated, or as I will say in this time frame, they should not be covered with dust. You should have utilized those and you should be familiar with these plans. The plan should ensure patient coordination within the facility, across healthcare providers, and in collaboration with state and local emergency organizations such as FEMA and your public health departments. CMS has a table accessible on its website detailing the requirements for provider types. 
For example, hospitals are required to provide alternate sources of energy to maintain temperatures to protect patients' health and safety, emergency lighting, and fire detection. On the other hand, home health agencies must have policies in place to determine how they will follow up with patients to inquire as to whether patients need additional services after an emergency or evacuation, which we've just experienced with Harvey in Texas and Irma in Florida. Rada, would you typically advise your clients to have their governing bodies approve policies and procedures like those for CMS emergency preparedness? These emergency plans really need to be viewed as compliance plans. I mean, very similar to how you deal with a compliance plan with top-down buy-in of the plan and the processes that are embodied within the plan. Of course, an organization's governing documents may speak to approval specifically, but typically board approval would not be required while it is definitely recommended. So who is going to monitor whether participating providers meet CMS requirements? Beth, allow me to respond to that question. Accrediting organizations and CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, regional offices will monitor for compliance as they do with all other requirements for participation in Medicare. So what are the penalties for not meeting requirements? Uh, they could be stiff. The requirements are a condition or requirement for participation in Medicare. Non-compliance with the requirements has the same penalties as other conditions of participation. It is important for Medicare participating entities to remain compliant with the requirements because deficiencies in one or more of these conditions can result in denial of payment and may lead to exclusion from Medicare if not corrected. Rada, you mentioned that the new rule is a condition of participation or a condition for coverage. What's the difference between a CMS condition of participation and a CMS condition of payment? Thanks, Beth. This is actually a very common question. As the name suggests, a condition of payment is a rule or a regulation that must be met in order for a healthcare provider to lawfully request and actually receive reimbursement from a federal health care program like Medicare, Medicaid, or TRICARE. The government imposes these conditions of payment to ensure that providers are offering patients quality service congruent with set standards within the medical community. On the other hand, a condition of participation is a broader concept. Conditions of participation are minimum health and safety standards focused on quality of care provided. The requirements are phrased more broadly and more imprecisely because they're designed to improve the quality of the healthcare that's provided, not to enforce specific administrative requirements. But as James referenced, the consistent failure of a provider to meet certain conditions of participation can result in suspension, termination, or revocation from the Medicare program. So are there any real risks of being audited by CMS for this particular requirement? As healthcare providers, no, there's always a risk of audit from CMS. Providers should be prepared to demonstrate compliant plans at their next accreditation survey, but should also be prepared in the interim for potential for random audits. This is not a policy or plan that is adopted and placed on a dusty shelf, as, as James referenced. It has to be a living and breathing aspect of the organization's culture in order for it to effectively be, in order for it to be effective at the time there is an actual emergency. So we've talked about conducting the risk assessment, developing the emergency plan, and implementing policies and procedures. What about developing and training and testing programs? James, do you suggest participating providers and facilities best train their employees and staff? How, how do they best train their employees and staff? Beth, a 
well-organized and effective training program will include an initial training for all new and existing staff in the emergency preparedness, annual emergency trainings to demonstrate the knowledge of emergency procedures. The facility must conduct drills and exercises to test their emergency plan, identify gaps and areas for improvement, and repeat the drills within the following year. One of the criteria for the emergency preparedness final rule is to have a fully executed test of your plan, not only internally inside of your walls, but externally with your community partners. That has to be documented. The second plan can be a tabletop with your facility uh, participating in the testing your plan. So we've talked about the tight timeline that providers are under. Do you recommend that providers strive to meet a minimum standard and then improve upon it? The, the final rule is a beast of a document at 651 pages, but surprisingly there is no minimum standard contained in that rule. It is a good idea to be in work on your plan by the time the deadline comes rather than having no plan at all. That might be the difference between a willful neglect finding if there is some negative outcome. Ultimately, providers need to understand that emergency preparedness plans are not a one-size-fits-all type of policy. They should ensure that existing operational infrastructure can actually support the details that they set forth in their final adopted plans. Just as organizations mature and grow, their plan should and can do the same. So along the lines of thinking of not a one-size-fits-all type of plan, the rule implies facilities need to ensure that their specific vendors have a business continuity plan to continue to provide supplies during emergencies, like food, water, and pharmaceuticals, James, how do you recommend facilities comply with that particular requirement? Beth, it is confusing for many organizations, especially healthcare providers, to understand and discern the difference in a business continuity plan and also a business contingency plan. I will define briefly for you and for our audience a business continuity plan. A business continuity plan indicates that an organization has experienced an outage the internal staff or senior leadership has to discern how soon they can return as near to 100% of operation as possible. Their business continuity plan provides for this. I suggest that healthcare organizations mimic their HIPAA business associate agreements approach with their vendors and established memorandums of, M of understanding, MOUs, with their key vendors. To comply with the CMS All Hazards requirement, healthcare providers must know their vendors have business continuity plans developed and can supply and support their healthcare facilities when an outage, natural or man-made, occurs. So I want to ask you about a specific Florida question. In light of Hurricane Irma and the related nursing home deaths at Hollywood Hills, Florida Governor Rick Scott enacted an emergency rule related to emergency operations of assisted living facilities. How does this new Florida rule intersect with the CMS final rule? Beth, that's a good question, a great example of what can happen and where um, the rule that's been in existence since its announcement 10 months ago would have played in. Uh, the way that the nursing facility, which is one of the 17 listed facilities on the final rule could have helped and been prepared would have been to have their risk assessment and their vulnerability uh, plan in effect. And it, it would have identified where 
uh, and what they needed to do. Uh, the governor speaks towards the emergency operations and also having a generator and in that having uh, 96 hours of fuel available for that generator. That's also inclusive in the CMS final rule for emergency preparedness. Unfortunately, smaller organizations such as a skilled nursing facility or nursing home felt that they are not a participant or that the final rule did not encompass them, but it does. As a matter of fact, in this one instance, there was a, a report with one of the providers who said that they have three facilities, but only 17 clients in those three facilities. They didn't feel that the rule was applicable to them, yet along what the governor was asking them to do. So they see it as a tremendous expense. Unfortunately, this is an example where being aware and being in process of the final rule for emergency preparedness may have saved lives. So it seems that providers and facilities might think the CMS emergency preparedness requirements are too expensive. Can you comment on the cost for developing the plan? Yes, I can do that. An estimate would be if you haven't done anything now with two months two months remaining for compliance with the final rule plan, you could expect to have two to three consultants on site helping you move forward in developing your emergency risk assessment plan, which I would estimate is 75 to 125 hours, your communications plan, which I would estimate to be 50 to 75 hours of work, your policies and procedures, which I would estimate to be 50 to 75 hours, and testing your actual plan itself, which would be estimated 20 to 40 hours. If you haven't done or began developing your plan by now, it will be quite expensive for you to meet compliance. Yikes. So we all know that healthcare providers face a tremendous burden with regulatory compliance, even aside and in addition to the CMS emergency rules. Some will have to invest full-time employee resources into developing the plan, training staff, and implementing policies in order to comply with the new requirements. In your experience, are there any tips that you have for complying with the requirements in a cost-efficient way? Yes, Beth, I do have a suggestion that healthcare providers could look towards. But unfortunately, time to achieve the CMS final rule is less than two months away. Similar racing, speed costs, that's what we're talking about now, being expeditious as far as getting your plan developed. If a healthcare provider could gain and get an agreement with their community healthcare provider partners and approach this in a shared plan development, expenses, a reduction in expenses is a possibility. Each one would need their own emergency risk assessment plan because it identifies what that individual site or facility needs to happen. But along with that, once this, uh, that is developed, they could approach an integrated model where the other three plans could be a shared expense from the other community partners. That's a suggestion they could look into. That's a great idea. We certainly encourage providers to begin preparing if they have not done so already. James and Rada, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. We encourage all participating providers to revisit the CMS final rule and their existing emergency preparedness plans to ensure compliance. The CMS website contains a great deal of useful information, including many frequently asked questions and template documents. However, should you have any questions, our healthcare attorneys are here to assist, and the contact information for Mr. Randolph can be found on our website, www.carltonfields.com.
You've been listening to Carlton Fields podcast series with Rada Bachman and Beth Scarola. To learn more about our healthcare practice, visit carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening. Thank you.